ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердце нашей земле... Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash seansrussiablog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. The conflict in eastern Ukraine briefly bubbled to international news when a bomb killed Alexander Zaharchenko, the head of the Donetsk People's Republic. For many outside the region, it was a reminder of a conflict that has mostly faded from view, except when it's waved as a geopolitical node in the wider standoff between Russia and the so-called West. But what of the people living around the front lines? How have they weathered the social economic storm that defines their daily lives? I return to Brian Milikovsky to bring us up to date on the situation in the Donbass. A word about this interview. I recorded it a week before Zaharchenko was assassinated, so we don't mention it. For some discussion on the assassination's implications for the conflict, I recommend listening to the most recent episode of Kevin Rothrock's The Russia Guy. Brian Milikovsky works as a consultant for international projects on economic recovery in the Donbass and writes about the economy of that region for outlets such as the Kennan Institute, the National Interest, and Open Democracy Russia. He has been working in Ukraine and Russia since 2009 on ecological and development issues. Here's Brian Milikovsky. So I thought we'd, we'd just start our conversation by having you bring us up to date um, with the situation in the Donbass uh, and along the front lines. Uh, so what, what are things like and how are they, have they changed at all in the last two years? Well, basically, the, the front line of this conflict has not budged significantly since the second Minsk agreement in March 2015 or February, February, March 2015. Uh, despite the fact that there's almost daily shelling uh, uh, and artillery exchanges between the sides. There have been small movements in the gray zone between the two forces in the last three years that I've been here. Uh, it's often uh, the Ukrainian army sort of moving a bit into that gray zone, uh, taking sort of active control over some, some very small towns that are there to, to improve their, their position vis-a-vis -vis the separatist and Russian forces. But uh, no big changes, which is not to say people aren't still dying. Uh, I, I believe uh, yesterday four to five Ukrainian soldiers were killed. And uh, in a small town here near the city of Papasna, which is right on the front line, uh, a, uh, a father of two was, was killed, uh, a civilian. When a, when a shell, presumably from the separatist side, uh, smashed into his house. So this sort of uh, low-level war that's very uh, limited to certain hotspots along the front line uh, continues, but without 
any noticeable results for three years. Yeah, it's a bleak situation. <laughs> yeah. So how is how is the war being played in Ukraine? Like how? I mean, we'll get to the local in a bit, but in on the national level, is the war still in people in the general political consciousness of the country, uh, or is it it's is it also drifting because of its it its kind of low intensity, kind of drifting as just uh, you know something that continues behind the scenes that's there, but it's not really something that people concern themselves with. I I'd, I'd, I'd say it's still. Uh an extremely important uh, and and sort of mind-consuming uh, issue for a lot of Ukrainians. There were recent uh, nationwide polls about what's most important to Ukrainians in the run-up to the to the presidential elections that Ukraine will soon go crazy over, and uh, and it was number one, which uh, surprised a lot of people. A lot of people thought it would be corruption with the economy, and they're in very close in one. In, I think of the second and third positions, but. Uh, of course, this is still uh, front and center for Ukrainians. That being said, on a sort of daily life basis, I mean, I, I live in Severodonetsk. It's the temporary capital of Luhansk Oblast, while the government does not control the city of Luhansk. And you can live here basically a completely normal existence. I mean, the economy is not in great shape, but it's not a wartime existence. Uh, about 20 kilometers from the front lines and sometimes in the evenings we hear heavy artillery but uh that you know it does not mean our, that everyone's here lives are, are consumed uh all the time by the war that being said i think any ukrainian recognizes that uh this war is uh like a ball and chain uh holding down the real recovery uh of the country especially the economy not that anybody has a a easy uh, proposed solution to, to how to end that but i think it's that that's clear to almost everyone um since you you know one of the times i, I think the first time i talked to you actually you were working with uh, refugees internally displaced persons so what's the what's the refugee situation like now well um there are still very large numbers of internally displaced persons most of them now displaced for several years into the government-controlled territories. Um, something I learned in my the two and a half years I spent in the humanitarian sector here in a, in a big NGO was that um, there are very many of them. It's a social crisis, and it's an enormous number of people deserving assistance. Uh, the big, big figures often put out by um, the government that are produced uh, from, from the number of people who are registered as IDPs are exaggerated. I think we just ought to have a we ought to have a uh, a real concept of the scale uh, because then we can we can really begin planning uh, because for how these people's lives can be incorporated into Ukrainian society fully uh, and get them back on a on a good economic footing because the 1.2 million figure that's often cited is um, includes an enormous number of people who. Uh, remain in the non-government controlled areas, but uh, registered here as IDPs in order to gain access to certain uh, welfare payments, uh, which are very good for keeping up their quality of life in their difficult conditions and getting their pensions. Uh, and that's particularly the case in the two Donbass provinces because many people 
came just across the line and registered nearby as IDPs so that they could more easily come to to get those uh, that that government support. Uh, so I, you know, in the province I live in, Luhansk Oblast, there's I think a hundred, maybe hundred eighty thousand registered IDPs, and maybe there's fifty thousand. That's still an enormous number of people for this territory to to absorb. But we really ought to we ought to think be thinking about the real problem and not uh, this larger figure. Um, everybody wants to use refugees politically. Uh, Poland wants to use them to explain why they're not accepting uh, refugees from the from Syria and other war torn countries. So they're counting the millions of Ukrainian guest workers going to Poland as refugees. Russia wants to count the true refugees. There are people who fled the war zone into Russia and they are genuine refugees together with huge numbers of Ukrainian labor migrants as refugees to demonstrate uh, that life in Ukraine is intolerable under the, the post-Maidan regime. And Ukraine wants to use the very large, the government in Ukraine, I think, sees the very large figure of 1.2 million uh, as a, a figure to put up against what the Russians are saying. See, like more people chose Ukraine when they got displaced. And we shouldn't be accepting anybody's use of refugees as a, as a political object. We need to be focusing on the, the real numbers. So uh, that was a sort of get around to how are they living. Many are now pretty well economically resettled. And many are uh, on the edge of, of complete desperation. And that reflects their, their diversity. Some were the middle class who got out with good assets and have skills that were easy to reactivate on this side. Some are pre-pension age, don't have uh, good marketable job skills and are, are living on those welfare payments and their, uh, their lives are uh, extremely bleak. And there are still a lot of people who are, are just barely above hunger and a lot of people who uh, are real success stories. So as with a lot of answers I'll probably give in this, it's a it's a diverse picture. Right, of course. I mean, because, you know, depending on your position in society, your class position, uh, education, all of these things, um, you know, it, you how you cope with these situations, uh, you know, is dependent upon those and your ability to adapt. Um, so, so you've, um, you're, you've been, you know, recently a lot of your writing over the last six months, if not longer, uh, has been focused on, um, how the situation in the Donbass has affected residents on the economic level. Um, so before getting into kind of specific issues dealing with the economy, what's the overall picture of the social economic life of, of the people you encounter in the region? Well, we need to remember uh, that everyone has lived through uh, inflation of the grivnia from eight to the dollar at the start of the conflict to it's now twenty-seven, and there's fears it will reach fears it will reach thirty. Although I've heard that also for you know I've I've heard fifty, sixty. You know, it's it's a it's a issue that uh, can can cause hysteria, but that is real. Eight to twenty-seven. So. Uh, of course, just as many, uh, unfortunately, many other times in post-Soviet history for Ukraine and Russia and other states that came out of the Soviet Union, that means obliteration of people's uh, savings. 
the the only a few played uh, currency well well and en- well enough to avoid that. Um, if we take, for instance, rural Ukrainians in the Donbas, uh, they've seen a in when you adjust for inflation, uh, more than two times reduction in their monthly incomes. Uh, the average, I believe, right now that was collected by a food and agriculture organiza- organization of the UN. They did a, a rural Donbas survey. I think monthly, average monthly incomes are uh, like one hundred and sixty dollars, uh, and more than a two-time drop. Uh, consumer purchasing power is way down. Um, it's that's a little hard to get your your finger on. One one very interesting little statistic from life we heard. We were in one of the big rural county seats in Luhanska Oblast, so out, out in the rural areas. And butchers there told us that their average customer buys a volume of meat about three times lower than before the war. So they're not getting themselves a nice big slice. They're buying the little cuts. You know, it's, that, that's just a little snapshot uh, of what we hear from a lot of small business people, which is we just don't have neighbors who have purchasing power uh, just like we don't. So, you know, is this a, a profound economic crisis? Yes. Um, is it total economic collapse that people are living through? No. Um, uh, some cities uh, have actually sort of received something of a wartime boost from the inflow of uh, internally displaced persons, of businesses that moved from that side of bureaucrats. So that's especially the case of the two uh, temporary capitals, Severodonetsk, the temporary capital of Luhansk Oblast, and Kramatorsk, uh, which is temporarily taking Donetsk's place. Uh, Those two cities have had all of these public officials, soldiers, policemen, security service, people coming in, paying, getting government salaries, paying taxes. And you see, for instance, the service industry in these cities uh, for instance, restaurants, high-quality supermarkets, uh, exploding. Uh, but of course, that's a sort of, in many ways, simply displaced economic activity from larger cities that are presently under uh, separatist and Russian control. Uh, you see um, labor migration, part of this really historic and probably uh, you know something of this tendency that I think is going to profoundly change Ukraine for for probably the next generation, which is their biggest labor migration, maybe in history, going on right now, uh, which is a bit of a safety valve, or I, I guess guess that's the right term. Term term, uh, it's letting off steam in the job market. Uh, this there would be a unemployment disaster here if there were not so many people going to Russia and Poland. And it has corrected itself to such an extent that now uh, all over the region, uh, large factories, the ones that are still operating, are experiencing a shortage of qualified workers, which is amazing in a, in a war-battered economy where three years ago I would have said there's an unemployment disaster. And now, now it's hard to find welders, lathe operators. So, so it's, a, it's a complex uh, picture, but of course, the basic fact is people have seen a major plunge in quality of life, uh, and they're in the midst of an economic crisis comparable to, maybe not quite as bad, but it, but sharing a lot of characteristics with what they experienced in the early '90s 
uh, somewhat 1998 when the Russian crash happened, and 2008, which was a, an enormous economic crisis in Ukraine. Do you have any sense of the situation on the other side in the separatist areas? What's your, what's your information? I mean, do you get information from what life is like there too? Yeah, so I'd like to qualify my earlier statements. I'm mostly talking now and I mostly write about the government-controlled Donbass, which is more than half the territory. Uh, I've never been to the non-government controlled areas for, for various reasons, but uh, I, I read a lot. Um, there are journalists who basically now make a career of uh, picking through social media on that side and creating these svodki, these like, uh, these, uh, you know, they're like, uh, they're like court, like uh, daily uh, updates from the non-government controlled areas. Right. Uh, I, I know them from, I know them from the Stalin period. This is yeah. what the NKVD would issue <laughs> yeah. about the mood of the masses. <laughs> yeah. So. It's a, it's in fact, uh, uh, it's rather similar. And um, I read a lot of those. I don't sort of do the monitoring myself. I, I read those and I speak to IDPs who go back and forth because many do live, uh, maintain a part of their life on that side. I, uh, you know, that's a, because those svodki are often gathered by sort of very intensely patriotic Ukrainian journalists, there's a risk of sort of uh, them being filtered to just give you the bad news. But in general, the picture seems to be that uh, extremely bleak economic situation on that side, significantly worse than here, as bad as everything I've already described. Uh, uh, the, that FAO, uh, Food and Agriculture Organization, uh, survey of rural areas was also done in, on that side of the front line. And they found labor migration rates uh, that were more than twice as high on that side to the extent that almost every second household has a member in labor migration, which is almost exclusively to Russia, of course. Uh, I mean, those are levels like Moldova, like, uh, you know, Bosnia, places that are famous for sort of losing most of their working age males, for instance. Um, very few factories uh, operating at any real level on that side, uh, large uh, because of disruption uh, from the fighting, damage, and then in 2017, the sort of final economic blowout uh, when um, the, the trade, full trade blockade was imposed uh, on the, on the non-government controlled areas. Before that, there was something of a... Um, a very strange, ambiguous level of economic activity going on between Ukraine proper and the non-government controlled areas, uh, in which large industrial enterprises re-registered uh, re on government controlled territory paid taxes, including the military tax, which is quite extraordinary when you think about it, uh, and were able to send their products onto government controlled territories so that they could be exported because you know heavy industry is is very export oriented here uh and that was broken off in 2017 the two sides sort of had an uh, uh escalating showdown um at one point ukrainian army veterans blocked railroad rail railroads by which coal and industrial products were coming from that side saying they were against the trade in blood uh President Poroshenko was against it, and then, to everyone's surprise, sort of did an about face and sort of legalized it. Uh, perhaps because the separatists had started threatening to nationalize all these factories, and he couldn't back down, and they then did that. 
uh, handing handing them over to uh, to a Ukrainian oligarch on the lamb. Um, and that was a disaster for for those factories and mines. Um, they lost their sort of exit out into the real world, and now they're they've been they've just sort of handed over. It was called nationalization, but it was just handing them to another oligarch. Uh, and that that really was a huge blow there. A lot of these Svotki will give information about mine layoffs, even though the best the best coal is all under separatist control, the anthracite coal. Uh, every single anthracite mine, uh, they they fought really to ensure that the, they would have control over them with the Russians. Uh, but uh, uh, there's layoffs, uh, mine closures, mines no longer having the water pumps keep the water out, so they're being destroyed by flooding. Um, and uh, people, IDPs I talk to who are over there say it's just we're afraid of it becoming this reservation for pensioners. And they're saying that about their native towns. So these are not people with a sort of, uh, you know, maybe getting some kind of pleasure out of seeing the separatists get their uh, their comeuppance. These are these are people who live most of their lives in those cities. So that's that's the even bleaker picture on on that side. You recently, and you mentioned it a little bit so far, but I want you to go into a bit more detail because um, you you wrote something about you know the fact that, and, and this I think this goes to the case of a lot of our reporting and and attention in the region in general and that is we focus mostly on cities and you uh emphasize rightly that we need to also pay attention and and keep in mind the rural er rural areas so talk about a bit more detail about uh rural life uh in, outside of in in the in the war zone yeah i mean uh, especially i pay a lot of attention here to the rural areas because in the government controlled maybe 60% of territory there's a very large amount a very high proportion of it is rural luhanska oblast uh had 14 cities uh 11 of them are presently under separatist russian control including luhansk which is several times larger than the next city so Luhansk Oblast government-controlled territory is essentially a small cluster of cities where I live and uh, an expanse of thinly populated uh, farmland. And the rural areas are maybe experiencing the highest level of sort of economic disruption because uh, essentially smallholder farmers, people living uh, off of the small patch of land near their house and possibly uh, the strip of the collective farm that they received in 1991 when the collective farms were dissolved, called their pie. They're living on this small uh, area of land and they have always been focused on growing fresh vegetables, fruit, milk, meat, and honey for the industrial cities. So this huge rural area was the, you know, the market garden uh, of Luhansk, Stakhanov, Pyrvomaisk, these big, dense industrial cities, almost all of which are now under separatist control. And uh, although I wrote in one of my pieces about uh, the one place that farmers are able to get their food through to Luhansk, which is the Stanitsa Luhanska uh, pedestrian crossing just across the river, uh, which has been a life-saving economic lifeline for farmers in that community that's a, a greenhouse growing community 
the vast majority of smallholder farmers here uh, don't have that ability to to carry their produce through that pedestrian crossing to the to the non-government controlled areas they've just lost their traditional market and it's sort of nice to say well then we should give them technical assistance to you know reorient on different markets well first of all they have another big market nearby russia they also used to sell there also lost and you look at the near the, the cities that are that are closest that are alternatives they're actually quite far away places like kharkiv uh through you have to travel on what is now widely recognized as ukraine's worst roads in lohansk oblast i can attest to that and you get there and they're surrounded by their own historical farming towns i mean for a farmer with a couple hectares to all of a sudden bust into a new market hundreds of kilometers away is is unfortunately not realistic for most of them and so again, I, I, I really, uh, I cite a lot FAO's really great data, high resolution data about what people in the rural Donbass are living through. You know, we had, we, this is why they have more than two time in, uh, drop in, in their monthly income. They are uh, decreasing the amount of area that they're uh, planting to summer crops by two times. Uh, they're slaughtering their dairy herd uh, and, and also their, um, their beef cows at uh, a really alarming rate. More than a third of basically the domestic animals have been slaughtered prematurely since the start of the war. And many villages, it's it's almost complete if they're they're far from a market. Uh, you know, so this is a really uh, profoundly difficult situation for uh, for many smallholder farmers. The majority of smallholder farmers in in the Donbas. What did they do in the winter? Um, some of them went into labor migration historically it's not like that began with the war uh you know many were still raising livestock that's that's plenty of work in the winter um some of them would get for forestry work in the small amount of forests around uh in the winter but um yeah that that's a good question i think some of them took it easy uh but not very uh basically rural people in the donbass are, are income gatherers so when you know they uh maybe the wife uh has a job in the town office or she works in the grocery store uh the husband might get temporary work with a big commercial farmer uh they might plant trees on logging sites in the in the planting season um you know sort of classic uh a little bit here a little bit there um Another important part of the picture in the rural Donbass is that there's these thousands and thousands, about 45,000 of these smallholder farming families in, in Luhansk Oblast, for instance. And then a thin layer of commercial farmers, large wheat and sunflower growers, controlling vast areas of high quality black earth farmland that they're renting from thousands and thousands and thousands of those smallholders who who lease out their piece of the collective farm that they received. And they're more or less riding out the war on global commodity markets. It's great. I mean, it's keeping up tax revenue, they're accumulating capital, but it, it creates a particularly um, stark contrast that the smallholders in their little, little uh, patches of land near the village uh, are in desperate straits and the big, uh, commercial farmers who might have hundreds, might have thousands of hectares. Are, are, I'm not going to say this is an easy time for them, but they're more or less riding this out as if there was not a war going on. Now, now the the 
the Donbass. Well, actually, so in, another thing you, you mentioned briefly too is the the fact that uh, the areas of the Donbass are under that are under separatist control. There's been a, a full blockade um, now for about a year and a half. You you told the story of how that developed. So t- talk a bit more of how uh, the blockade has has impacted the region uh, and the sense of the overall conflict. Yeah, I mean, that blockade is a very, it's a difficult topic. I can understand the um, confusion and sort of uh, outrage even that some, many people here in Ukraine, and I've often heard this from uh, from foreigners who are also observing the con- conflict, say, how could you continue trade with these, you know, separate uh, russian backed russian and russian backed is a is a um not strong enough term you know of course the the so-called people's republics could not last a day without the uh russian arms and the promise of full-out russian intervention which has occurred several times in only a, a vi- barely concealed way in order to shift the the outcome of the war uh so you know how could you continue trading with them you know, how could you trade with the enemy? Uh, that's understandable, except we just really often need to try to remember that people are living for now four years in this conflict zone. You cannot have no economy and no economic activity. I mean, you could, and you'd basically turn the government-controlled Donbass into a, you know, a, just a military beachhead, sort of. I mean, this is one of the most densely populated parts of Ukraine. Uh, and it's just it's yes it's ideologically ambiguous but that trade was uh that continued economic activity between the two sides uh, was very important and so i'm a uh i'm very critical of the concept of this uh blockade i think that ambiguous situation should have been left in place the blockade hits the non-government controlled areas harder uh in some ways the really dark predictions that this would kill, for instance, Ukrainian metallurgy because they need the anthracite and the coke coal from that side uh, were exaggerated. Metallurgy in government-controlled places like Mariupol, uh, Dnipro, took a hit, uh, adjusted, found new sources uh, for the coal it needed and and is more or less doing fine, although that's that's sort of a different story of what's happening to them. Energy plants here took a hard hit. Uh, it affected the price of electricity and heating unquestionably for people who are already deeply affected by the war. But again, as for instance, Russia said, if you blockade these territories, you know, you're, you're, you won't have heating in the winter because you won't have the coal. Well, no. Uh, but still, the economic impacts for Ukraine are measured. Uh, I did a analysis where I tried to find as many sources about what the impacts are for government controlled areas. And it, it seems to be measured in the billions of dollars if we look at trade imbalance, uh, its effect on the Grivnia, and the, as well as the direct losses, economic losses to to companies that were working with with uh, factories, for instance, that are still on the, that are in the non-government controlled areas. But for the non-government controlled areas, it's a disaster. And I would say some people say, well, you know, we have to basically drive them to economic ruin to uh, make that model completely unsuccessful and then we'll take them back in. But 
if Ukraine is re-inheriting an economic basket case uh, when those er territories do return, uh, you know, is that a, is that a good strategy going forward? It could make the return of the Donbass an enormous blow to Ukraine if essentially there is complete uh, industrial collapse on that side. When a mine shuts down and it's not getting pumped out, you don't just turn the pumps back on in a couple of years. Uh, I mean, you, you can, for instance, the mines were pumped out after the Second World War, but this, I mean, the Soviet Union spent what would now be unthinkable riches bringing industry back after occupation in the Second World War, those funds are not available and are going to be available, uh, especially for industries that are, you know, marginally competitive in the global markets. When a factory shuts down, when the big uh, ovens, or not ovens, sorry, the, the stove, the, the boilers and the, um, these giant metallurgy ovens basically cool, you can't even sometimes get them going again. Uh, when, the, when the engineers are all gone, which is a problem on both sides, you can't just flick the switch back on again and start up this industrial economy. So this huge blow to the factories on that side caused by the blockade, uh, the further drop in quality of life for the people that were associated with those mines and factories, uh, it, it was really just a sort of further drop into, um, I don't know, this probably sound really dramatic, but sort of into the abyss economically here uh, for that side that'll make it so much harder to come out the other side when those territories uh, return to Ukraine. You, you mentioned a little bit about also about labor migration um, and, and, you know, it people, one way to cope with all of this economic loss is to basically go and find work elsewhere in Poland and Russia into the, you know, the Western parts of Ukraine. So talk a bit about how, and talk a bit more about labor migration and, and the general movement of people across the line, because you, you did mention people are moving back and forth. You know, how is it easy? Is it easy to move? Uh, you know, how do people accomplish this, uh, you know? Well, there's a couple of different processes here. There's movement back and forth across the front line between government-controlled and non-government-controlled areas of the Donbass. That's um, a real pain in the, in the neck. Uh, in Luhansk Oblast, it means standing in line because there are no, there are no uh, crossings where a car can move into the non-government-controlled areas. That's a weird fluke of Luhansk compared to Donetsk Oblast where there are four vehicle crossings. Uh, it's, it's awful. You stand in line in the hot sun with thousands of mostly older people, uh, who've come going back and forth to buy groceries and get their pensions. Uh, but you can cross over into that territory. And I know people who do it maybe once a month, they're keeping track of their apartment. They maybe have some little bit of their business that's still alive on that side. They're looking after relatives. Uh, they're making sure their property is not being quote unquote nationalized. Uh, and uh but they're often trying to make a living on this side not always successfully so there's that movement and then there's this all ukrainian phenomenon of this enormous uh, flow of zarbitchanya who are uh, which means wage earners that is labor migrants yes some go to kiev uh, another big 
big cities. You said, you know, to the western part of Ukraine, western Ukraine, which is mostly rural, is also an enormous uh, source of labor migration. Very few Easterners would go to western Ukraine to work. Uh, they're <laughs> traveling along with western Ukrainians to uh, Warsaw, Moscow, uh, Russia's oil fields, um, being nannies in Portugal, uh, working in factories in Poland or the Czech Republic. I mean, it's an enormous labor migration that by one good estimate I've seen uh, um, could be 25% of Ukraine's working age, economically active population. So that excludes, for instance, working age woman who's on maternity leave. So those who are of working age and are in the workforce, a quarter of them might be out of the country right now. So a lot of people, I mean, just to interrupt, a lot of a lot of the people's ability to maintain life is dependent, increasingly dependent upon remittances. Yeah, remittances are enormously important. Although there's also a a process of uh, people going into long term labor migration and sometimes not sending money home anymore, um, and sometimes calling their families after them. Um, but uh, yes, remittances are enormously important. Uh, here, there are so many households, urban and rural, for instance, in Luhansk Oblast, where um, you know there are small towns where you don't see a lot of working age men on the street. Um, this is one reason why another policy that kind of boggles my mind is that the the minister of transportation in Ukraine recently announced his intention to cut off train and official bus lines to Russia. Uh, yeah, again, as this just sort of up in the stratosphere, like, well, this makes sense ideologically. How can we have our, you know, our citizens going to work for the aggressor, which again, on the surface makes sense. But then when we descend from the stratosphere to the real life of these people, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in the Donbass uh, and other Eastern Ukrainian regions. I mean, there's by some estimates more than a million uh, guest workers in Russia. Uh, this is their economic lifeline. And when he, Emelian, the transportation minister says, well, they'll find work now in the European Union. You know, he's not, he's not really thinking about uh, these people's well-being. This is entirely a political gesture. And you're not going to uh, free them from Russia's ideological, uh, you know, sort of information sphere uh, by dramatically uh, undermining their livelihoods. They're not going to say, you know, gosh, you know, I used to be sympathetic towards Russia, but now that I'm not allowed to go there to work anymore, that's really changing my, uh, my attitude towards the Ukrainian government. For obvious reasons, it's more likely to, to deep, more deeply embitter uh, so many people in this region. So that is an enormous um, movement. It, it will change this country profoundly. Besides all of the workers Poland is bringing in is opening spaces in its universities for Ukrainian students. It's it's a symptom of how uh, very disrupted Ukraine's economy, which was already not a uh, you know a tiger before this war, is, and people are are voting with their feet. Uh, can they bring something back from labor migration that will help this country in its long-term recovery? Or 
are they lost to Ukraine? I mean, these, these questions are now reaching, you know, the scale of millions of people. So how are people, I mean, it, it from from everything you're saying, it sounds like it, it, I kind of break it down in terms of, on the one hand, through things like blockade and also ideas of, of closing off transportation, uh, people are being separated, right? Uh, the difficulty in crossing the lines People are, are 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 people who are in the um, separatist-controlled regions, and the government-controlled regions are increasingly like there are walls between them, figuratively. Uh, you have labor migration and and internally displaced people, so there's lots of movement. People who, as you said, are voting with their feet. Um, and and the idea, the solution to this conflict at some point will have to be the reintegration of these separatist regions back into the Ukrainian state. So given how do local residents view the ongoing conflict, uh, given all of these push, pull, pulling apart, uh, I'm imagining various animosities and just the, the dealing with everyday life? I mean, I think, um, and I said this two years ago, there's, uh, um, in, in the last time we spoke, that there's, of course, a sinking realization that this is going the way of other frozen post-Soviet conflicts. Uh, uh, and, you know, there's, <laughs> there is so much material out there to see what happened in Abkhazia, uh, Transnistria, um, uh Ossetia, south Ossetia, to uh to the economies of uh i think transnistria is the best example because it was also sort of this concentrated industrial zone that had these you know these sort of uh fault lines of identity running through it uh uh and it it's not a um hope giving picture it, i would recommend people read Yelena Racheva's, uh, from Novaya Gazeta's, her uh, correspondence from Transnistria from last year, uh, of the sort of contraband state, uh, unrecognized state that it is. Uh, so, you know, when two years ago I said that people are exhausted uh, and not sure how to go forward, uh, and wondering how their region can avoid that fate of places like Transnistria, that's still the way they are today, which is why they say that, you know, ending this war is their number one concern going into the presidential elections. Uh, and that's not just people in the duck boss. Um, I think there's a, uh, I think, you know, seeing that, uh, that that side, the, the so-called people's republics uh, did not, prosper, Russia did extremely little to economically uh, integrate them. Uh, that was a lie that was foisted onto many people who believed that uh, that their economy would uh, sort of fit well into uh, Russia, uh, where in fact, all those same old rusting factories that are sort of on the margins of profitability have many 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 russian competitors in the exact same conditions so the thought that russia would be thrilled to inherit them uh uh or that this would be uh this wonderful effect for the region's uh coal mines when in fact russia ruthlessly quote unquote optimized 
its nearby coal mines in the Rostov region. Again, you can read Novaya Gazeta's really great journalism about the hunger strikes of Russian miners just across the border from the Luhansk People's Republic. I think this has shown people that, well, that model definitely is not attractive. Uh, so there's not, I think, even when people here might still have cultural, many people have cultural Russian sympathy, uh, really don't like the current government. There's not a lot of desire here, for instance, in a city like Severodonetsk to see it join the Luhansk People's Republic. But nobody, nobody knows where, where to go because the right now most likely scenario is, is free, a deep freeze. Uh, which, and when you look at the economic uh, picture already right now, which is not total disaster, some even industrial sectors have weathered this, but others are still, are, are just sort of with their breath, holding their breath, uh, waiting for some kind of resolution that allows them to reconnect old logistic, logistical chains, regain access to that important coal, uh, Yes, sometimes regain access to the Russian market for heavy machine building, for instance. You know, they're looking at these trends and thinking, God, if this freezes, uh, what possible route to recovery is there? And, and Particularly as, as, as it increasingly gets embedded. As it increasingly gets embedded. And uh, I believe more um, a more open... Uh, not so strictly sort of policed uh, discussion needs to be happening about how the economy of this region can live in the long term. Uh, because, for instance, some, I mean, when I just have said things like, uh, man, that blockade, that was really a shot right into, into the foot. Um, you know, I have uh, found myself with people, so, some commentators some simply people I know sort of saying that, uh, you know, trying to sort of uh, say that that's, that's not a legitimate uh, viewpoint. We're in wartime. Uh, we have to take extraordinary measures. How can you suggest trading with the terrorists? Uh, which, uh, but we need to be thinking about the long-term economic survival of, of millions of people here. Uh, and, you know, when this uh, discussion is sort of endlessly geopoliticized, uh, you know, and, and my, my solutions that I might think about or that I think we need to be talking about are not sort of, you know, cave into the Russians, give them everything they want because you can't live without their economy, I mean, uh, without their market. Uh, real life experience is showing it's much more complicated than that. But uh, the current status quo uh, is not giving a lot of hope. And finally, you know, in several of your, your recent writings, you, you've expressed, you know, pretty clearly a, a call to action for addressing some of the, the many economic issues plaguing the Donbass region. So um, what, what can be done? Well, I think, for, first of all, uh, in uh, the biggest piece I've written so far, uh, On the Edge, uh, war and industrial crisis in Luhansk Oblast uh, for the Kennan Institute, uh, I tried to put a lot of emphasis on the, the feeling here in Luhansk Oblast that there's not a strategy. There's not an effort going on to find all the ways that, uh, for instance, Kyiv could 
uh, bolster those enterprises, industrial enterprises that have continued working through this in intensely difficult and artificial market conditions in the war zone. Uh, and that needs to happen. There needs to be that sort of strategic thinking about using uh, state uh, contracts and tenders uh, to try to temporarily uh, uh, replace lost markets for, for instance, uh, the Papasna railway car factory while it goes through the process of feeling out new markets in the Middle East, in Europe for, for spare parts, uh, while it goes through its own adjustment to these new economic conditions, uh, it could go under. Uh, when there, Ukraine is thinking about replacing large amounts of its freight stock, well, can we be directing contracts to this factory? And some people would say, no, Ukraine is trying so hard to clean up and depoliticize the, uh, you know, state contracting. Ukraine's well-known uh, Prozoro, uh, which is a success story of trying to bring state contracting, make it more uh, transparent, uh, more fair, not a political uh, instrument. And I understand that point of view, but let's stop pretending a factory like the Papasna Railway or freight car factory is operating in some kind of normal, natural economic conditions. They're located on the front line. 50 shells were fired onto the, onto the territory of that factory. Their pre-war market was completely shut off to them by the Russians who uh, stopped Ukrainian freight cars from entering basically the Commonwealth of Independent States, not just Russia, but all of Kazakhstan, Belarus. Uh, you know, they, they are not operating in normal economic conditions, so leaving them to fend for themselves, uh, which is often suggested and I think fits with the sort of um, neoliberal zeitgeist right now in, in Kyiv, I think is a huge mistake. Uh, the Azot chemical factory in the, in the city I live in, it might be doomed. Maybe the state cannot save every factory, but this factory makes chemical fertilizers. They're synthesized from natural gas. That natural gas traditionally came from Russia. It's not going to be at prices ever again uh, without capitulating to Russia, which Ukraine won't do, that are uh, make this enormous factory, which until recently was employing 7,000 people, uh, profitable. Well, okay, sorry, that's the market. Or Ukraine is now greatly ramping up its own natural gas production. A political temporary solution might be subsidized Ukrainian natural gas for this and other other fertilizer factories so that Ukraine doesn't lose its own domestic fertilizer production while it's trying to become an agricultural uh, world power and become dependent on the Russians for, for fertilizer, which is what's happening right now. There's a million examples of this. You could take every troubled uh, industrial sector right now and say, what can the state do to help them get through this incredibly difficult and unnatural transition period? I don't see that happening. There's sort of scattered good policies that might be helping, uh, but not a sort of full press right now. What can we do to uh, get 
Dunbar's heavy industry, which is such an important part of the economy here, through this period. Do you do you, one last thing? Do you think that, and and this just comes from you know an observation based on what you're saying, but also my you know looking at paying attention to this issue in and out, um, that. In Moscow, I mean, you spoke about how, you know, the Russians promised all of this stuff and they're not coming through with any of it. In, in many respects, it sounds like, you know, they broke the Donbass, but they don't want to buy it. And then uh, Kiev also, um, you know, not directing certain sustainable programs to to keep it, keep the region running. Do you think one of the problems in the conflict is that both Moscow and Kiev see the Donbass as expendable to some extent? I'd say both see the other as having broken it. Uh, you know, um, Russia's point of view, of course, being you know that that the the Maidan movement broke Ukraine, uh, and you know separatism was was a legitimate uh, reaction to that. We you know we need a couple hours to go through all of that. Um, you know this this war is orchestrated by Russia. Uh, but there, it should. It, it, Kiev is in this incredibly difficult position, in which it needs to think about the economic survival of this region because the Donbas is Ukraine, and at the same time that uh, you know it has to uh, fight the precedent that Russia is trying to create here and not uh, just easily not not uh embrace solutions uh that have this incredible ideological uh subtext to them uh that in essence you know russia is always offering well you know we can lift our terror our, our sanctions which are a real uh which are for instance been a huge blow to ukrainian machine building russian economic sanctions uh but you know with obvious expectation of return in the form of capitulation. That is Ukraine's incredible challenge. Uh, my belief is that in the, make, striking that balance, Ukraine and Kyiv need to be thinking more right now about the long-term economic survival of this region and accepting that that will probably mean more ideologically uh, ambiguous solutions than many purists would like uh, without going to full capitulation. I'll give a tiny example. I know we're running out of time. Uh, uh, I mentioned Stanitsa Luhanska, greenhouse farming town just across from Luhansk. I was there in 2015. They had completely lost their historical market, which is just a few kilometers away. Uh, they had been severely damaged in the war. It was it was a horrible atmosphere of desperation uh, and sort of shell shock. Uh, and and production in this uh, greenhouse farming town, which is hundreds and hundreds of small greenhouse farmers, dropped to 15% of pre-war levels. People were dumping their vegetables into ditches and covering them with dirt, feeding them to pigs. A year later, Ukraine says, okay, you can carry by hand small amounts of your, your produce through the pedestrian crossing to Luhansk and sell it. Instantly, these greenhouse farmers have are standing at the bottleneck to an enormous underserved market, Luhansk, which can no longer get Ukrainian produce. They get the best 
vegetable prices in Ukraine. It pumps money back into this traumatized community. People are rebuilding homes that were bombed out. People are flooding back from Russia, from other parts of Ukraine, to restart their little greenhouse farms. And now Stanitsa Luhanska is one of the more hopeful places economically, even though it's right on the front line and there are still shells occasionally flying into, into this community, uh, because they regained access to their traditional market. Some Ukrainians that I've spoken to don't like that. Uh, no trade with, with the enemy. But it gave life back to Stanitsa Luhanska. Solutions like that, we, we need to be looking at more of them. That was Brian Milikovsky, who works as a consultant for international projects on economic recovery in the Donbass and writes about the economy of that region for outlets such as the Kennan Institute, the National Interest, and Open Democracy Russia. He's been working in Ukraine and Russia since 2009 on ecological and development issues. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Raw shit, hardcore, yes. hip hop, yes. Live, we wait us back again. Raw shit, hardcore, hip hop, 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 Volume level up to 10 is bringing my time on the rhyme battlefield. Watching as my brothers are killed with no justice or peace in the middle of hell. And I was out on the high when the two towers fell. So now you're gonna tell me that the war is won. And what's done is done. And all good, son of a bush. I've been there before. Got a letter from the government. Slid underneath my front door. The poor get fucked while I'm interested in the muse. And what's left of the Bill of Rights is pimped and abused by the patriots acting like kings. But the black and Back. I'm all in with the noise I bring. Public enemy number one in New York. Public enemy number one in Chicago. Public enemy number one in Detroit. Public enemy number one in Oakland. Public enemy number one in Baltimore. Public enemy number one in Miami. Public enemy number one in Indiana. Also, public enemy number one in LA. While we just get by While we struggle to maintain Bring sight to the blind Up against the machine A bush killer remain In between the government And the public that's trained Where white companies Profit off black death And house nigga rap thugs Sell murder to kids Where the media maintains All thought control And fake news propaganda So the rock the soul We all unified to fight Keep the message in awake black Open up your eyes See the enemy and shake that Bullshit line Free your mind We combine To combat the perpetrator Of the crime design with fake patriots and religion the same, both blind and repressed, both practicing hate.